podcast one production. Created for expectant parents, new mums, new grandparents, or women thinking about becoming pregnant. This series guides you through the highs and lows of pregnancy, giving birth, and the complexities of parenting. Welcome to Birth, Baby, and Beyond with midwife Kath Curtin. Welcome to Birth, Baby, and Beyond. I'm joined by midwife Kath Curtin. Kath, it's always a pleasure. Lovely to see you, Brooke. Kath, today we are talking about babies, all yeah. the nuances mm. of babies. How complex can it be? Well, it can be easy, but, you know, we make it pretty hard when we have our own babies. It's frightening at some level when you take a new baby home. A lot of people haven't actually held a baby. First time they've held a baby is their own baby. So that's pretty frightening. Is that right? And, and a great responsibility when all of a sudden it's yours and you're supposed to know what to do and change the nappy, know what to do, how to burp them, how to hold them, how to soothe them. You're it. You're the responsibility. So a lot of parents find it hard. Not as though you have to go and find babies and try handling them. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's about learning on the job too. And today we are joined by paediatrician Dr. Brendan Chan, who obviously has some great insights about babies and nuances. He does. He's fabulous. And Brendan and I work together closely and uh, it's really good to have a a doctor's perspective. And a lot of people don't actually understand what paediatricians do, Brendan. So um, what's your background as far as your study and and what you have to do to become a paediatrician? Uh, yeah, a paediatrician is really just a, uh, a doctor who's done some extra specialty training. So really in uh, you do your basic medical degree, which is five, six years now in Australia. And then following that, um, you do an extra at least six years of further training. To, to become, become a baby doctor. To become a, <laughs> a children's doctor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's we're basically specialists uh, that look after children. Yeah. How do you pr- describe your work practice? Is it is it a general practice? And for yeah, I, look, I, I've sort of created, uh, I guess, a niche for myself. Uh, I, I mean, during our training, we sort of learn about pretty much everything um, that we possibly can in paediatrics. And then you can choose to specialise in one specific area mm. if you wish. But I've, I've chosen, because I like all different areas or aspects of paediatrics, I do a little bit of everything. So yeah. I sort of work with newborn babies, um, with yourself. Yeah. Uh, I also uh, look after children with uh, who are a bit older with, for example, developmental problems. Like toddlers or older? Yeah, yeah. toddlers. Yeah. Um, so what age group does it cut off? Uh, I always tell my patients 17. So I was going to say 18. Yeah, we 17, say 18. Yeah, yeah. Off, to the, off to a, a when, grown up doctor. Yeah. When they're ready to vote. <laughs> Fantastic. As I said, Brendan and I work together a lot. But, and, and I understand women don't know when to see a paediatrician when they have a paediatrician come. So what we do is in the hospital situation, we organise a paediatrician. This is in a private setting and in the public setting too. Um, you're on a roster. So you see patients when, um, when necessary. Then there's the clinical side if you need to go and see a paediatrician on a monthly, weekly basis, whatever it needs to be. So we're going to talk about some of the common reasons why mothers would want to take the baby to see someone like Brendan. And um, it's about, you know, 
going to your hospital and finding who is a paediatrician that works in the hospital and um, who actually works within your area. Uh, they're the paediatricians to go and see. So does the hospital refer refer you to a paediatrician or you're usually a general practitioner? Mm. So you need to if there's a if there's a big issue, a general practitioner will order um, a referral and often pick one. And once the the guys and ladies have trained, they know who's doing and who's specialising in what. So um, if for example, if Brendan's been at a cesarean section with. Um, a patient, he will then see the patient ongoing and that's allocated in the hospital through the doctor, the obstetrician's rooms. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, you always need a referral to a paediatrician so they're a specialist. If you have a name, you go to your doctor or if, you've, if your friends have a referral that they know a name that they, they say, look, this person is a very good paediatrician, they can actually um, give you someone who, to advise someone to go to. So, is it compulsory? Does every new mother need a paediatrician? Not, not necessarily. I think uh, in, in the community, the general practitioners do a fantastic job yep. of looking after um, all sorts of patients, including children and infants. And there are a lot of conditions that general practitioners can manage quite easily without having to refer on to a, a paediatrician. And I, I would generally say to patients that you know, find yourself a good general practitioner first, someone who's experienced with working with children. And if they then don't know the answers or need some further help with any specific conditions, then they, they can refer on. Exactly. We're going to talk about a few things that I know I hear a lot and um, I need you to sort of debunk a bit of these um, the conditions. Um, one thing, what happens with babies is they people come home with a new baby, they're sitting around during the day and they're absolutely having a lovely time, lights go off, they've bathed the baby, they've fed the baby, everything's fine, it's in its cot and then they are that noisy at night. It is just ear-piercing and you cannot believe such a little baby can make such a huge amount of noise. Men move out of their bed. They go into the single room, you know all that. And um, it's just incredible how much noise and it causes so much anxiety because I know it causes fear mm. and that fear then causes the anxiety. It, they're worried, so worried about there's something wrong with their baby. I know I talk to parents about we put our images on what we've learnt and our experiences. So if we think we're laying in bed, uh, you know, groaning and crying and squirming, we're actually in sick. Pain. Yeah, Something's right. wrong straight so to the emergency. So they project that onto the baby. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think most parents have this image that when babies are sleeping that they're quiet and, mm. and they shouldn't make any noise at all. And, in fact, I think it's more the other way around. I think babies actually make a lot of noise. Yeah, uh, I like noisy babies. Yeah, yeah. Most of the, and most of that noise is just normal baby noise. I mean, babies like adults go through sleep cycles every 40 minutes or so of light sleep and deep sleep. And when you come in and out of those sleep cycles, you'll get, they, they get restless, much like adults do. So they'll groan and they'll grunt and they'll squirm. They'll do all of that stuff, most of the time still remaining asleep. A lot of the times, I mean, you could watch a kid sleep for two, three hours and see the child moving around, grunting, squirming. Believe drawing, me, they do yeah, on the monitors. <laughs> yeah, drawing, drawing their legs up, arching yeah. their backs. All of those things can be quite normal. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't necessarily have to signify that there's something serious or something, something wrong with the baby. 
And everyone blames it on wind because, again, they think, oh, they're arching their back, they're pulling their legs up. But that's also a normal process of what a baby does. A baby does pull their legs up because it's just developmental. So, again, we've talked earlier about this um, fantasy and reality. You know, the fantasy of seeing a baby, a picture of a baby, and they're nice and quiet is what people think they're getting. Absolutely. But reality is a really, really noisy, grunty, squirmy, farty baby. All night. All night. <laughs> and so, and not to worry about it. Don't rush to the emergency section. It's no, 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 no. Not necessarily, no. No. It's about looking at your baby and saying, is he sick or is he well? Because you can't be both. How do you know, Kat? Well, if, if you've seen your baby and they, they're acting normally and they've been checked and they're fine, you know they're well. So babies can't be sick and well at the same time. You're either sick or you're well. You're one or the other. You can't be both. And- so keep that mantra in your head. It really is... Very important thing to keep in your head and it helps you decrease the anxiety. So, Brendan, do you think they're noisier with reflux? Sometimes. Mm. I think, I mean, I I often try, when I see a patient whose family are worried about reflux or that their child's in pain, I try and get a good idea of what they're doing the entire day. Mm. Obviously, if, if they're awake more often than not, and they're awake and crying and in pain as opposed to sleeping and grunting and squirming, I'd be a little bit more concerned. Plus also if that behaviour is going 24-7 rather than just blocks of the day, I'd be a little bit more concerned. So uh, I try and look at sort of not just the degree of crying and the degree of upset, but also the duration. Yeah. um, Do you have a lot of people come to you with that concern? It's probably, I, I would say the top sort of three to yeah, five things that, that they come and see me yeah, for. Yeah. Um, and mainly, I think that's mainly because I see a lot of babies in hospital mm. and families like to keep in, in touch shortly after. And it's usually the, the first six-week period after they've gone home that they have all of these concerns. And it's usually right. the first six-week period where reflux starts to develop. Yeah, exactly. Well, can we explain what reflux is? Yeah, so reflux is just... It's the same in, in, in adults as well. It's just... Uh, stomach contents and stomach acid coming up from the stomach through what's called the gastroesophageal valve and then up into the esophagus and that acid can cause discomfort and if the stomach contents come up enough then you can vomit as well. So vomiting associated with pain and discomfort is the, I guess, the quintessential mm, or the quintessential foul. symptoms. Yeah. So the babies often go... Bip, 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 bip. So it's a really good thing to talk to mums and dads and say... You know, when they cough and sneeze and grunt and all that sort of stuff and vomit, do they does their face change? Look at your baby because mm. it's really good to get that. I've got a foul picture. taste in my mouth and it's ugh. yeah. And the babies, their faces tell a million stories. Mm. You know, you've got to and and Mother Nature's got it all organised. They there's a reason for everything. Everything that a baby does, there's a reason behind it. So he's going like this because it tastes disgusting. That acid. They're used to beautiful sweet breast milk. And how common how common is is reflux? I don't think we know that uh, conclusively. Um, I think, I'm sure it's quite common. I, I reckon sort of up to 5 to 10% of babies, just off the top of my head. Mm. Uh, but the severity of reflux is on a spectrum. So mm. you can either be very minor and mild or you can be quite severe. I, I actually like to split it up into three different categories. So I've got one category where you've got vomiting and pain. Um, and generally those babies, if the pain's significant enough, you would treat it. Then you've got another category where they just vomit 
but there's actually not that much acid coming up into the esophagus, so they're pretty happy. So really, what we call the happy chuckers, <laughs> right? And and then you've That's got you, Brooke. <laughs> <laughs> keep it clean, <laughs> I have no idea what she's talking about, Brennan. Keep, please, please continue. Yeah, we, we are over the cup weekend here, so there'll be a lot of happy vomiters. Uh, and then there's the there are the babies who don't vomit. And, but they're in significant pain or what, mm. what the parents believe is significant pain. And I, I, that's the group that's harder to deal with or what we call the silent refluxes. And, I mean, we can talk about that another time, but I, I generally split it up into those three things. It's yeah. really the kids who vomit and are in significant pain mm. or the kids who are quote-unquote silent refluxes mm. who you're not quite sure whether it's reflux or not that you would need to treat. The happy chuckers... Love yeah, them. You just, just change your clothes. That's yeah, all. you just do. You just do a lot of laundry. You do a lot we're of lovable. Yeah. You got the you got we're the lovable. badge of yeah. maternity on your shoulder all the time, and that's midwifery. That's like you vomit on your shoulder. The hard thing is that when a baby's with the reflux, it it usually starts. I circle two or three weeks, and it it just starts then, and they feel like they've. The mums and dads feel like they've coped so well, and then they all of a sudden feel like they've done something wrong. It's it's like, am I feeding enough? Should I give it more? You've got the community, you've got the family, extended families, they need something else, you're not doing enough, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of it, it's anxiety too, isn't it, Brendan? Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, and I agree with you, Kath. I yeah. think usually it's that the first two weeks are beautiful. You, yeah. think, you think you've got a perfect baby. Smoking. Yep. And, and, then, then, and then everything changes. Shocking. <laughs> But it's not always it's not always reflux. I no. mean, everything can change just yep. because your child's going through a new developmental stage and waking up. Yep. Yeah. So what about colic? I'm not a colic fan, as you know, <clears throat> and only because I think back in back in the olden days, you know, babies were crying clearly from reflux back in the seventies, and. We were actually medicating the babies to go, you know, because the mothers and parents were so distressed. We had to actually put the babies to sleep, which is terrible. Yeah, they were quite, they, I think back then they were using some quite heavy drugs. Big stuff, mm. yeah. So all you, all you babies out there that have grown up now, you've all, <laughs> you, you were all drugged to sleep. Wow. <laughs> um, but but it was we didn't know what we didn't know. So we had a very unsettled crying, cr- screaming baby with mums that ended up blaming themselves. The support systems weren't there as they are now. Also, it was a very closed community. With social media, we have an open, more open community now that we can look on on Instagram, we can read a blog, we can look on Facebook and think, oh, she's, not, she's got a baby that's crying too. So it was really closed and you felt very isolated and alone at home with a baby that's crying and it was your fault. And it was a colic? What's, is colic the same as reflux? Well, do you talk to that, Brenda? What, what would well, you think? I, I mean, colic is really, it's, it's quite an interesting concept. Uh, I think in the past, it, uh, by very nature of its name, it, it really suggests that it's discomfort that's originating from the bowel. But... We know that not all babies who cry, uh, not all babies who seem to be in discomfort have pain that's originating from the bowel. And I think as much as we can, we try and educate parents that even though they've grown up with the concept of colic, and it's probably a term and a concept that's been passed on from generation to generation, I try and move them away from the concept that it's all due to pain and all due to pain originating from the bowel. Sometimes if I can't sort of move them on from that, 
you know, I, I do talk about things like just the immaturity of the bowel, adjusting to things, uh, but also that children go through developmental phases in terms of even in the first sort of several weeks of life where they will cry, as we've mm. discussed, around the two-week two, two week mark. So when you're talking about immaturity of the bowel, when would you say that that settles? Like, what what's what's immaturity of the bowel? I know it's yeah. a million-dollar question, but... I mean, I, I think whether you call it colic, whether you call it uh, just normal infant behaviour and crying, generally that will settle down by about 12 weeks. Would yeah, you agree? So, yeah, three months. Yeah, three the months is that, is, that magic, yeah, is, is that magic time. Six weeks and then three months. Yeah. So get the texters and Yeah, absolutely. Circles. Get yeah. the key dates. Kat. They are. They are. Uh, with reflux, it usually starts early, two, three weeks. And with treatment, it takes a little while to settle. The vomiting often doesn't settle unless you're giving a thickened formula and you can manage it like that. So often the babies will, will vomit till uh, eight, ten months. Um, and it's not vomiting, sick vomiting, it's it's just positing lots of bits of milk all the time. So it's not dangerous to their health, it's just annoying. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, but reflux, if you, if you, once you explain reflux and you've got a or colic, and you actually have a word and an understanding of, especially heartburn, because a lot of women have heartburn during pregnancy, and if they 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 can relate to that, go, oh yeah, that was really bad. I understand that. So that's why the baby's squirming and crying, and they get it. You've okay. got to do it's, it in it's plain, simple English, and say this is what your baby's feeling. Yeah. Rather than all our medical terminology, it's just this is how he's feeling. He's not sick. He's uncomfortable. If he's sick, he is not well. With reflux, they're actually well. Okay. So it's fine. And and that's where you need to talk to the maternal and child health nurse, the GP, and if necessary, see a paediatrician. So, Brendan, other things like cow's milk protein allergy, certainly something we didn't know about years ago. We fed kids anything. Um, God only knows. They, they were on sweetened condensed milk. and Yeah, so cow's milk protein allergy or intolerance is probably the other... Uh, possibility that you consider when you're trying to think about why a baby's unsettled in in those first few weeks of life. So next to reflux, it's probably, they're probably the top two things that I'd consider, particularly if you've got a well looking baby. Generally, most babies with a a milk uh, protein intolerance are are well looking. There there are some exceptions, um, but essentially it's it's an intolerance. It's not a true allergy as as most people know an allergy like you're allergic to something yeah, and, and you like get peanuts. an anaphylactic yeah, reaction, yeah. you get swelling. So it's very different from that. It's a different biological mechanism. Mm. And what it is is that the the gut is intolerant to the protein component of milk. So it can be actually um, coming through in breast milk or coming through any dairy-based formula. Um, and it can manifest itself in a number of ways, mm. um, some subtle, but some very obvious. So the the most obvious symptoms are some, you, you can get some streaky blood in the poo. Mm. Um, so th- and often that's what parents will come with, yeah, yeah. present with first, because they know blood in poo is not good. Yeah. And As in, yeah. Absolutely. And, but in general, they, I mean, they'll often ring me up and say, look, my, my baby's got, just had some streaks of blood in the poo. And the first question I'll ask is, do they look well? Are they mm. well? Oh, yeah, no, he's smiling away. He or she's smiling away. And mm. then you automatically know that, that that's pretty much the telltale sign that it's a milk protein intolerance if you've got blood in the poo in an otherwise well child. Mm. 
Some babies, they don't present as, as easily or as specifically. Some babies if, with a severe milk protein intolerance ha- have trouble putting on weight mm-hmm. uh, while feeding. Uh, and other, other babies just present very similar to reflux. So they can be vomiting, they can be unsettled all the time. Uh, and it can make it very difficult to di- differentiate between mm. reflux and, and milk protein intolerance. So when you when you treat them for reflux and maybe decrease the um, dairy intake for the mum, yeah, is it just working out? Yeah, it's, it's it's really trying to figure out if I'm tossing up between those two possibilities. It's trying to figure out in my mind what is the most likely based on the symptoms. Sometimes parents come in and they're really at wit's end because their baby's been unsettled for uh, days or weeks and they haven't had any sleep, nobody's Mm, had any sleep. And sometimes you throw the kitchen sink at it. You go, okay, we'll treat for reflux and we'll treat for milk protein intolerance at the same time, so long as we get a you know a happier baby at yeah. the end of it as quickly as possible. Does this mean that you, you, your child is going to be intolerant to milk for the rest of their lives? For, for, fortunately not. So the majority of babies or children with a milk protein intolerance, they'll, they will grow out of it uh, usually by two years of age um, and even more so by three years of age. So over 95, 97% of children will grow out of it after a period of eliminating it from their diet. New phenomenon, or did we have this problem back when I was a child? We had everything back when you were a child, and when I was a child, for God's sake. I don't think it's a new phenomenon, but I think it's just being more... more reckon- yeah, we yeah, know more about yeah, it. Exactly. Uh, that's really great information, and um, if there's any blood in your baby's poo at any time, any streaks, or you see it as blood, or even that sort of dark red blood too, the, the red currant jelly. It's always best to have the baby checked by a GP and if there's any concerns, the GP will refer you off um, to a paediatrician. So I um, just want to talk about immunisation, Brendan. Um, it's it's a big topic. I think people are really more aware of it now and um, they're you know, the immunisation rate, I think, is is good. Um, I think the immunisation rate's really good. I think I, I it's improved a lot. People are getting the message. I think it's because there have been a number of uh, previously vaccinated for diseases uh, that have actually come back and made a comeback, things like measles. Yeah. And I think there have been some noteworthy um, new bacterial diseases mm. such as meningococcal that mm. have been... Uh, that have unfortunately resulted in some bad outcomes for both children and adults. And I think that's brought immunisation squarely back into yeah. the forefront of people's minds. And I, th- and I know the, the new parents that I work with, they're very, very keen on having everyone immunised around them. Absolutely. Which is great because as a public health um, campaign immunisation, everyone needs to be, um, the herd needs to be immunised. So the more people are immunised, because we've got people in the community that can't be immunised. So the the sick, people having cancer and the, and the very young. So they're more um, likely to have, get the infection. So if someone, if the, if the grandmother or someone had um, a whooping cough and you've got a new baby, it's, 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 that's when it's hard. So you, the, the more people we immunise, the, the best. Can I, can I ask about the anti-immunisation? Like, why are there two camps? Why don't, what's the issue? I think the anti-immunisation uh, camp has really got to boost off some now debunked research that was done I think a decade ago uh, that seemed to correlate one particular vaccination, which is the measles, mumps and rubella, rubella sorry, vaccination with autism. Now, that 
following that research, uh, well, that research has now actually been debunked and they've done further studies uh, to show that there is no link between the MMR, which is the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and autism. But I think that the anti-vaccination group really got a kick from a kick off from, from that. So it's important for babies to be immunised. We all worry about it. We all worry about when we take our little bubs down to be immunised. I closed my eyes. I can remember that much. Then I looked over to my mum and she had her eyes closed. I thought, you're no help. <laughs> I think, I think uh, Kath, you, you brought up something sort of really important before that we, we live in not an insular age anymore, but, you know, there's so much information that's really readily available mm. and at hand. And what I, you know, encourage parents to do is is actually look at reputable sites yeah. of information. Exactly. And there are plenty of reputable sites of yeah, information. Yeah, there's some around. great things to Google. So if you're going to Google, Google hospital sites like, you know, for, for the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, um, or other, like, the all women's hospitals in each state, there's some really good stuff out there. Well, that's a stickler, isn't it? You, you have to know that the site, the information you're getting your information from, the site, um, is credible. And so to really ensure that, you're saying follow the professional organisations, go to the hospitals, go to the, the federal organisations, yes? Exactly, Absolutely. yeah, and the, the, the state government. So a question I hear a lot is, okay, my baby's being immunised today, when will he be safe to be out in the world? Everyone wants to go out and have coffee um, and take them for a walk, and so when when are they safe? How long does it take for this immunisation to kick, kick in? Well, it takes... A, it, it depends on the vaccination, but it can take anywhere from two to six weeks before that before one particular vaccination kicks in. But also you have to remember that for a lot of the vaccinations, you only get, uh, you know, a certain percentage of... of, Yeah, Mm. you only get partly immunised. So you need to keep having those vaccinations uh, at the regular intervals as... as And they're at a regular interval for a reason. And that particular interval, aren't they, Brendan? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I know um, some mums who've had three or four babies, I thought, oh, God, I forgot the fourth one, you know. So it's never too late. To, I'm the eighth child, so I got, <coughs> God only knows if I'm immunised. Um, but um, so it's really important to, you know, make a, a list of things to do or, or circle six weeks and say first immunisation. Um, and I get asked that. The question you asked earlier about sort of when can I take my child out, mm. I get asked that a lot as yeah. well. And, and I think... Regardless of vaccinations, I think you just use a bit of common sense yep. um, that obviously if there are people who want to come and visit your baby who are obviously sick, uh, I like to say if, if you've got bodily fluids coming from anywhere, so if you're coughing, <laughs> runny nose, vomiting, diarrhoea, mm. then Don't come. just stay away. Outside the window. Absolutely. Yeah. And also um, some cultures do what's called cultural confinement. I love cultural confinement. What like, is cultural Well, confinement? I kept trying to tell my maternal child, I thought I was an Irish somewhere down, the t- so I needed cultural Aye. confinement. So cultural confinement is that the, the mothers stay home with the babies for 40 days in the house. It's marvellous. These mothers feed well, the babies thrive. The mother of the, the grandmother cooks these wonderful soups with um, ginger and chicken and I've, I've tried them all because I've gone and done home visits to, to these families and they're marvellous and they're so loved and supported. None of this Googling or um, uh, Instagram photos or out doing a selfie and having coffee, they're home, being cared for, being kept warm and it's... 
I know. I love it myself because I love the nurturing of, of the family. Yep. And I think we're so into fast mode here. Let's just keep it down and keep our babies close and look after them because everyone's worried. We're worried. We're the worried well. And we need to look after these little babies. So give the mum the okay to stay at home. It's yeah, really Don't fun. need to rush out. to. Don't no. need to rush out. Visitors. Good God. Visitors in hospital are just out of control, you know. Well, then if you don't go, then, you, you know, you feel like you haven't paid enough attention and then if no, you... No, some people actually say, we don't want visitors. Do they? Women are doing that now. We don't want any visitors. We'll let you know when you can come. Yeah. Yeah. So back the, to... The other, th- the other, the other thing I'd, I would always say to parents is the other common sense thing would be just to for visitors to wash their hands. Yeah. Uh, just very simple hygiene yeah. um, is all that's needed yeah, exactly. as well. Mm. Non-immunised people... Mm. And, you know, um, we have got the no play. Uh, no jab, no, no play. No jab, no play now, which um, I support and I think is, uh, is providing a, a good support system for our, our young families. And But we do, there, there are communities that will have someone who doesn't have a child immunised or they're not immunised. There's something that you said <coughs> earlier, Kath, that I think is very important is that Immunisation is not just a, a choice you make, an individual choice, but you're making a choice for the general public as well. You, you, you immunise yourself or you immunise your child and that gives your child some sort of protection. But that protection is amplified yeah. if more people in the community are vaccinated. So once the vaccination rate for any particular disease gets over a certain percentage, then it protects everyone else, including the people who are non-immunised. Mm. Exactly. So... Yep. Yeah. yeah, so it's non-immunised... Yeah, it's exactly. a public health... Um, exactly. Process and it's also like when you when you teach public health, you have to teach everyone the same thing. So giving Panadol, you have to teach everyone the same way to do it. But there's always there's always some leeway that uh, uh, we, as professionals we know we can go up or down. But as new parents, we have to teach the rule. We have to teach the same rule because there are some people that will take a chance and mm. babies can't cope with that. It's the same with making up formula. You have to have the right scoops because it needs, it's a ratio that is necessary. We know we can maybe go up and down, but we don't, it, it, it's not something that as a public health we want to put out there. Can I just ask for clarification, with immunisation, non-immunised, you know, neighbour or friend or family friend, can you take your newborn who's been immunised and play with the non-immunised child? Like, what's the danger? Yeah, I, look, there, uh, I think there's a, there's a, there is a degree of fear amongst uh, the immunised family that uh, their child might be exposed to a, a disease that, that a non-immunised child or, or person might have. And I think that most parents would err on the side of being very cautious and say, there's no way that my child's playing with a family with non-immunised children. I would probably take a more common sense approach and just approach it the same way that I would approach just a, a regular uh, person, like I said before, just make sure you're not sick mm. and hand washing. Yeah, um, hand washing's everything. Just because in gen- soap. Yeah. You don't need the pump things. Yep. Nothing fancy, just Nothing soap. fancy. Good old velvet soap, as mum wash, wash your hands well for 30 seconds. Yeah, sing happy uh, birthday. Make sure you're scrubbing you for 30 seconds. so old-fashioned. Oh, washing no. your hands. Get a load Oh, with soap. <laughs> happy birthday to you. In between <laughs> the fingers. Uh, so, yeah, it's... Okay. it's uh, uh, Common after sense. After toilet, 
after you know handling food. It's before handling food with the baby. That's it's, that's the best way to protect yeah. your baby. Just two common sense common things. Sense. Make sure you're I not sick and, and, and wash your hands. So we're talking about a sick baby, Brendan, mm. and babies will have a temperature. Most babies will have a temperature during their first twelve months. Some people get re- really over the top that they have to have Panadol every time, whereas well, that's a very old-fashioned thinking too, um, even though Panadol is a fabulous drug and it's necessary to have on hand. They don't always need Panadol, do they? No, they don't. Mm. I would say that my general advice would be don't use Panadol un- unless your child is unsettled or irritable. So mm. just use it as a comfort measure. Mm. Uh, don't use it sort of don't don't base your usage of Panadol on what your child's temperature is. Just base it on what your child looks like. So your temperature, would you say over 38.5? Yeah, it depends on how you measure it. Mm. So generally speaking, in, in the newborn period, which is the first four weeks or first month of life, and up to probably about six months of life, I would just ask parents to buy a very simple underarm thermometer. A digital one. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or just a normal Just a normal just, one. Oh, okay. yeah, it's, it, they are digital, yeah, but they're, yeah. they're really easy to use and you'll see them used pretty much in every emergency department yep. in Melbourne that looks after children. So you just go with what they use, an underarm thermometer. Forget about the, the digital, the yeah. forehead, infrared sort of guns, things yeah. like that. And the ear ones, they're, they're too big. Yeah, the ear ones that, so up until, most parents, if they've come to me at sort of six weeks or three months, have already bought the in-ear ones, mm. which is fine. Keep it. They're expensive because you'll, too. Keep it. You'll use bucks. it when, yeah, you'll use it down, when the, track. Uh, yeah, down yeah. the track, when, you, when your child's big enough and yeah. their ear canal's big enough. But for the young babies, just a simple underarm thermometer, just make sure you have the tip of it right in the middle of the underarm and just make sure that you hold your baby's um, against the side of the chest when uh, against the side of the chest when you're taking the temperature. That's all you need. So if you're using that method, then the normal temperature range for a baby is between 36.5 and 37.5 degrees. So anything over 37.5, we'd consider a temperature. And if you're not sure, just measure it again half an hour to an hour later. One trick about giving taking a temperature with babies, as I've said many times on this podcast, that there's a reason for everything. There's the, everything they do, every movement they do. There's a reason behind it. So when you, if you hold a baby at the wrist and lift their arm up, they'll re- react by putting their elbow into their side. So to actually lift a baby's arm up, you need to do like a chicken wing, hold the elbow and lift the baby up. It's true, though, yeah, is it? Yeah. Also, jumping back 10 steps, babies that are born, I see a lot of babies with infection under their arms because they're not being wiped properly at bath time or the vernix is not being taken off, which is the, the lovely cream that covers the babies at, um, at birth or in utero and then at birth. And I can have babies come in to see me. I can smell them from the door, seriously, from the underarm and, and they have some rotten infections. Yeah, so it is, it is hard to get to because the natural. If you leave a baby just to be in their natural position, everything's tucked up. So mm. you've got your arms tucked in, your elbows tucked up, your knees tucked up. That's the natural newborn Fetal. position. Yeah. yeah, for a few weeks. Mm. Um, so 
parents and and they're hard to sort of get that arm out or that yeah. knee out. You so you stretch them out. Yeah. So well, you hold them at the elbow and you lift them up. So I teach parents how to do that and and show. Look at all this cream underneath their arms and and they get very distressed if they think it's a, you know really <coughs> smelly and so they feel, they feel they're not doing a good job. It's fine. That's what I'm here to do and we're here to do is to teach you things that that you need to do. These are the things that people don't know and they don't this is the basic parenting stuff that as a maternal and child health nurse is our role to teach the basic of basic things because you feel shocking if your kid's got a, an infection and it stinks under the arm. You feel like you've... Mm, yeah. Absolutely. So... Um, when, 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 when you are a little bit older and you are using the, the in-ear or the tympanic thermometers, then a temperature would be over 38. So... Different, different ways of measuring uh, give you sort of different temperature measurements and, and so we base our definition of fever depending on how you measure the temperature. Does it have to be for a certain period of time though? Like what if they're between, you know, 35, 36 and they hit that 37 and a half but, you know, but they're dropping. Do you, do you wait for it to maintain for a certain amount of period or once they hit that 37 and a half to the... Again, it depends on how well or unwell you think your baby is. So... The general rule of thumb would be that the younger your baby is, so the closer it is to birth, and we generally use the under one month, we'd always say that a temperature is important and it should get checked out uh, within the, you know, on that day by, by a doctor. If it's after hours, go to your emergency department. Because the younger you are, the more susceptible you are to more serious infections. And sometimes fever is the only sign of any type of infection. And you don't know in that young first month age group whether it's going to be serious or not. And some babies are even born with a temperature, aren't yeah. they? With a high temperature. Yeah, because of things that have happened yeah, in, uh, utero. in yeah. utero and during labour. So the older you get, sort of when you're three, six months and above, then you've got a little bit more time to wait then because your baby's not as susceptible to serious infection firstly, but also you probably have a better idea, I mean, call it parental intuition, yep. whether your baby's well or unwell. You really do know. Believe yep. me, and we've talked about this before, it's you know your baby so well, that's when you also know whether they're sick or well, and they they change behaviour about two days before something declares. And when they change behaviour, learning that is one of the gifts of being a mum because you think, oh, you sort of... I've heard so many mums say, oh, this being really not a good kid today and I always go, take it, take the baby's temperature, see how it's feeling. Usually a gastro or a cold or something like that will follow in a couple of days. Yeah. One of the, I think one of the first things that we're always taught uh, doing paediatric training is listen to the parents. Yep. You know, because they know their child. I mean, you come and see me, I probably don't know your child. I've seen your child for all of 20 minutes. I have no idea what your child is like normally, what kind of personality mm. your child is. So we're always, and I always teach sort of the students that I take around is listen to the family. You know, yeah. if the family are concerned. You're then, concerned. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important to listen. So what do you do, Kath? Baby's got a temperature. What do you do? Well, in, well, Brendan can talk to that. But uh, look, I do use Panadol a fair bit. Um, and I would say to a mum, not a fair bit, like I would say the first two years is when you'd use Panadol the most because you've got all the immunisation, the coughs and colds, a bit of gastro, you've got childcare, you've got teething. You've got teething, teething, teething and teething. And some kids get ahead of teeth overnight and they're fine. Some kids, every tooth is hard work 
and it's it's just that's just what it is. You can't pick it. They're all different in every family, and teething pain for children, I feel, is real. I know some um, uh, medical practitioners don't see it as a thing, but it's really the the process before the eruption of the tooth. It's the, it's the, the movement. Yeah, the, the red teeth sore. and that sore ear and that sort of tickle in the back of their throat and they get a sore bottom because they get sort of you know, acidy poo and they nearly get a, a degree, a, bur- a first degree burn on their bottom. Yeah, I, I would be generally a little bit more careful with, with temperature in a younger baby. Yep. So if, like I said, your baby is in the first one to three months of life, and they develop a temperature, then I would definitely get them reviewed by a doctor. Uh, after three to six months of age, it depends on how your baby is. Mm. You don't always have to act um, just because your baby has just broken out of temperature. Is your baby doing everything else it normally does well? Is it sleeping well and is it feeding well, which is generally all they do. Yep. And if they're still doing those things well, then you've got a little bit of time to wait. You can just wait and see what other symptoms perhaps evolve, mm. Um, over time and as as Kath said sometimes a fever is just the first sign that they're going to have an infection and that infection may not be severe it mm. might just be a cold yeah. um, or gastro yeah. so you don't if your if your baby's a little that little bit older and you know your baby well and your baby's still doing the normal things that they're doing then you do it's have okay. a little bit more time yeah. to wait yeah don't panic and don't throw them, put the babies in a cold bath either. That's really important. It's a very old-fashioned thing. But, jeez, oh, God, what we used to do years ago. But mm. um, well, that's, that's no longer cool. No, because if you've got... Uh, I think, you, I mean, I wouldn't throw them in a bath. Not throw them in a bath, but place them gently, <laughs> very gently. Not throwing. <laughs> Sorry. But you can, but you I know, mean, if, if your baby's... You, if your baby's feels hot, then you can strip them down a bit. But what happens is that you've got a lot of grandmothers coming in with information Mm. and my age group, 25, um, (laughs) my age group sort of saying, when we were, you know, when you were young, we used to throw you in the bath and and we did, Mm. you know, and the kids would have, God only knows what, but it's, the times have changed, we know more. So as much as I love grandmas and grandpas and I think their advice is just fantastic. There are some things that we have changed our thinking around. Bathing a baby that with the temperature is one of them. As yeah. Brendan says, strip them down. Yeah, I don't, you don't have to be that extreme to put them into no, a bath. But, no, but life was extreme back then, mm. the 70s. Look how we all turned out. I mean, sorry, I wasn't even <laughs> born in the 70s. Oh, of course not. <laughs> we all turned out all right. <laughs> I survived the 70s. That's even more amazing. What's another indicator of, of a sick child? We're talking about temperatures. Their eyes. 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 Okay. Red eyes, itchy eyes, no, sad just, eyes. No, just sick eyes. Okay. Yeah, they often have a glazed appearance, yeah. don't they? And you know, that, what Brendan was saying is that you know your baby. Trust your gut. Don't worry about what Google says about signs and symptoms. Mm. Trust your gut. If you think your baby has changed, if your baby doesn't look well... If they're it's, not, if they're not, not who they are, yeah, pretty much. You know, yeah. if you've got a baby that's Happy you know, an absolute yeah. tear away normally, and they're just lying on the couch, you know, that's not. Yeah. you know, that's not your child. Yeah. So, a bit about poo because everyone gets obsessed about poo and babies. We've talked about how many blood- poo photos have you seen? Oh, okay. my phone. Seriously, my phone is X-rated. I have everything on my phone: nipples, bottoms. 
vaginas. Why have you got this stuff? Because on your people phone? send them to me, going, "Is this okay?" <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, sure." I mean, I'm I'm, I'm having dinner. <laughs> and, and a, a lot of mums do have a poo folder on their yeah, phone. Yeah, you too, Brenna. Are you getting these? Like, yeah, I get these. I get emails. I, 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 I send I, them off to him sometimes. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I, had a, I had a mother the other day say, "I've this is the weirdest thing I've ever done. This is a photo of my child's poo." Yeah, but it's actually good for us. I I talk to new parents and say, if you're worried about your child, a what it looks like, what it um, sounds like, what it uh, is doing and anything that, you know, it's it's poo or vomit, take a photo. Video or photo. Take a photo or video and send it to me. Um, a rash, great. It's great having a photo of a rash and I can say, actually, it's fine. Or else, you know, I'll often shoot it to, uh, to Brendan and say, what do you think if I'm not confident about it? And um, it's a really great way of of understanding and diagnosing when you're not there. Mm. It's not the only way. The best way is to go and seek advice, but it's it's a good way, an initial um, place to say, what should I be worried? Look, in terms of... Do you want to look at my photos? No, no. <laughs> no, look, I have a really difficult time with the newborn baby nappies and things like that, and I just would have imagined that the poos, I mean, they're pretty out there. I mean, it's... Breastfed isn't. Uh, they're beautiful. They smell beautiful. Oh, enough. <laughs> Do you mean out there in terms of smell or out there in terms of appearance? Appearance. Yeah. Like, it's all, it's Ooh, everywhere. smell. Yeah. Oh, gross. So, I mean, what are we looking for? Well, look, I think the reassuring thing is that most of the time, poo is going to be normal. So, normal baby's poo uh, spans an entire spectrum from yellow to green colour, from very runny to sort of more mushy in texture and, ev- and, and everything in between. I think for me, the only times where colour of the poo or where the poo may be a sign that there's something going on is, as we discussed earlier, if there's blood in the poo, uh, if the poo's white. Yeah, red, black and white. That's right. Or, yeah, black. St Kilda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, St Kilda. Um, hey, take it away. Sorry, sorry. Sorry. I'm cutting that out. <laughs> Go so on. red, black, or white poo. Right, that's yeah. it. That's what? pretty much it. It is. Yeah, I Green mean, poo. Don't worry about. No, it. no, don't worry about it. And yellow, fine. Yeah, yellow's fine. yellow's no, lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, we love it. Yeah. Um, and it? I think, and I think also, if if it's if it's coming out in pretty much rock hard pellets. Yes, if you can break a window with it. <laughs> <laughs> so don't throw your, the baby's poo. It's not a test. Do not pick it up and throw and break all your windows. Break glass, the emergency other, break. The other, <laughs> <laughs> it's past the, the throw test. Um, the other thing is if it stinks, like not poo smell, but offensive, like oh, sulfuric. Smell. Yeah, really bad. If it's really off and you feel it's it's bad, take a photo. Mm. Scratch and smell. Yeah, just it's. <laughs> you're completely <laughs> mad. We're medical people. We love talking about... Well, the other thing is poo, and, and poo changes too. Mm. So it can change, you know, day to day, week to week, and, and that's pretty eat. normal. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And again, we're looking for consistency, so not just one, just wait for two. Yeah. Or... And then baby's not going to have an adult poo because it's not eating food. It's, having, it's, it's drinking milk. Mm. Also, babies who are only on milk are never constipated. That's my theory. Breast milk, you mean? No. All milk. All milk. Yeah, I know. We'll have a fight now. Yeah, do it. Is there go, is go, there go. a conflicting thing, Brendan? My, I, I think unless you've got unless you've got 
one of those conditions we uh, cow's milk protein intolerance. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, or, or you can, you, there are certain sort of very uncommon conditions of the bowel that can cause constipation at an early age. If, if a baby's fully breastfed, they're never, ever constipated. And they can also go about 20 days without a poo, believe it or not. And when they have a poo, get the orange plastic garbage bag. <laughs> You don't, you, don't want, you don't want to be the one. Oh, they're beautiful. And they just, they sleep afterwards. They're really grumpy beforehand, the babies. Um, so w- w- they can go a long time. Babies, if you introduce some formula to a breastfed baby, you sometimes well, the, the poo is actually green and it really smells offensive. So, and the farts are just shocking. Like, every, every Every time you introduce something new to a baby's diet, it that, changes. It'll exactly. change. Yeah. And by by putting your values onto the baby, by thinking the baby has to have a bowel action every day to be well, they don't. But you have to be careful. As long as they're passing wind and they're eating and they're otherwise well, they don't have to have a bowel action every day. Some have three or four a day, especially newborn babies. I had a baby earlier this year, I think mid-January, and the mum called me up and said, my baby hasn't pooed this year. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. I'm going to use that next year. <laughs> I said, don't worry about it. Oh, that's a that's a classic. That's a classic. So, so is it standard? Like, it's fine every four days. It's fine if it. Yeah, but once they get to you know, sort of uh, after six weeks, ba- parents will know that they don't have a, a poo for you know two or three days, and they they know it's going to happen. So it's about not worrying too much unless you've got those telltale signs. Again, yeah. using your gut reaction. That's right. Flatheads. Flatheads. Oh, flatheads. 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 I keep getting told I've got a flathead. You Have probably you? did. You probably do, but you've no, got a beautiful head of hair. I don't. Exactly, right? Yeah. So what's the problem with flatheads? Exactly. It, it's it's all cosmetic, essentially. It but is. You, some babies have a head that's flatter on one side than the other. Um, and most of the time, well, almost all the time, it's just a cosmetic thing. Sometimes there can be a problem with the way that the skull is formed uh, because at, in the early age, uh, under sort of 12 to 18 months, your skull's made up of different plates uh, and the plates are separated because they need to grow and then they become fused at a later age. So sometimes a couple of, two of those plates, two or more of those plates might fuse prematurely and that might cause a flathead as well. But the majority of times a flathead is just... Uh, a cosmetic thing that has occurred. Sometimes it's occurred sort of from birth because the baby's sitting in the womb a certain way and it comes out and you're already behind the eight ball in terms of shape. What do you do? So Send it back. No. (laughs) 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 Refund, ching, ching. Well, I think the the main thing is not to worry um, because – and what you're trying to do is essentially you're trying to get to a point where you're not making – the uh, the flatness any worse because you want to you want to try and ride out the seas until bub gets to an age where they're sitting um, and thus spending less time on their back and less time on that flat head uh, because after that point in time then the head sort of has a better opportunity to sort of pop out lots uh, of tummy time lots That's of cool. tummy time so also, wanna... also with the um, with the flat head if 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 babies start with you know, a tendency to turn to one side, that's what they do, don't exactly. they? Exactly. And when they're asleep, they tend to turn always to the side. So it's good to just turn the baby if you're giving it some tummy time. So if it's turning to the left side all the time, put it on the ground next to like a window, 
um, where the stimulation is on the opposite side. So they actually will turn around to that. And you turn the baby around to maximise neck movement. Yep. What about physiotherapy if there's issues with that, Brendan? Well, I, I work very closely with, uh, with a physiotherapist. Um, her name's Jess. And she, I sort of asked her this question and, and she gave me a few sort of simple tips for parents as well. And, and it, it is along the lines of what you said, but generally alternating sides that they sleep. So when they're asleep, just try and turn them to the other side every second sleep so they're not always sleeping on the same side. Um, if you're feeding or if you're bottle feeding babies, yeah, then exactly. swap sides in yep. which you feed so that they don't get... Because one of the main things that can happen, if you've got... If you're preferring to lie on one side, then uh, one side of your neck's going to get stiff as well. So that if they're not using that uh, muscle to turn to the other side, that neck doesn't get used. So it, get, it gets quite stiff. Um, so one of the things you're trying to prevent is stiff neck, which then will make your head worse as well. So, yeah, just swapping sides, whether it be sleep or feeding... Like Kath said, getting on tummy time as early as possible from the beginning. I start day Why, one. What's the deal? What day one? Yeah, so yep. strength, strengthening their neck and their, and their core strength, um, and and in in that way, and obviously the more time you spend off the back of your head. So if they if they're good on their tummy and they enjoy being on their tummy, um, then that helps to prevent them always being on their back and mm. always being on their head. Um, and the other thing that Jess suggested was also. Don't always just play with them on their back. So have them, they can play on their side. So yeah. just roll up a towel behind their back so they're on one side and they're playing so that they're spending time on different sides of their mm. body, not just on their back. Mm. And especially if you've got older children, they're really helpful. <laughs> they come in handy, the yeah. toddlers, to stimulate the baby on the other side. Animals, get them to, to, to be around the baby. I don't sort of promote the baby gyms because I feel that the baby just lays there and looks at these things moving. So get rid of them, put the baby on their tummy, on their back, on their tummy, on the side, on their side, just rotate the baby around, hold the baby, whatever you want to do. Just keeping it flat on its back all day isn't good for anyone. Yeah. And they will get a flat They will get a flat head. We have seen a baby that looked like Stewie from Family Guy. <laughs> <laughs> Is that such real? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'd refer you'd refer to a paediatric physiotherapist yeah. if things weren't improving mm. in, in that first six months. So if it was looking very lopsided, uh, then a, a physiotherapist can help with a few more exercises that the family can do. Mm. But they also get involved because there might come a time where you, you get to six months, six to eight months of age and the head hasn't improved as much as you'd like and then you're looking at more definitive treatments such as wearing a moulding helmet. So at about six to eight months of age, some kids with, with a significantly flat head uh, can benefit from a helmet just to just readjust that. And how shape. long do they need to wear that for? It depends. It's somewhere, often sort of somewhere on the average of 10 to 12 weeks. Uh, usually it's worn full time. They look pretty cool. You can get, you can get different designs and things like that. It's yeah, not. It's lovely. not. It's not that uncomfortable. So they no, get, they look good. They yeah. they serve the purpose. Yeah, they're, they're only little. They don't know. No, it's no. It's, they, and people, you can put a hat it. over them if you're really worried. No, <laughs> a beanie. A beanie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, one one thing that I um, just come off the top of my head now is um, congenital hip dysplasia. dysplasia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, women who have a baby in the breech position. Yeah. So any sort of. Any sort of, uh, I guess, 
packaging problem in the womb. So anything that results in the hip not being able to move very well in the womb can be a risk factor for uh, babies developing a condition called hip dysplasia, which is basically underdevelopment of the, of the hip socket. Um, and if that socket doesn't develop very well, then the thigh bone which inserts into the socket can be a bit unstable. Uh, and if it's not picked up and fixed early in life, it can, it can actually lead to complications later on. So a higher risk of adults developing early onset um, osteoarthritis and having hip pain and requiring uh, hip replacements at a very early age. So it's something that can be picked up, treated, yeah, picked up 100%, yeah. easily, diagnosed easily with an ultrasound if, if, uh, if it's thought that there may be some signs or symptoms of hip dysplasia. What are they? What, what are you looking for and so at what age? What you're looking for, so it's, it's probably more something that, that uh, your GP, your, your maternal and child health nurse or your paediatrician mm. looks at, but uh, it's recognising that uh, if there are risk factors involved, so like I said, if, if a baby's been breached um, or if you're one of a twin, so obviously... Um, two babies in the womb, less room to move. Um, family history. Is family it, yeah. history is important as well. So the condition can run through family. So those are probably the main mm. uh, risk factors. So if, if those risk factors are, uh, are present, then that baby, regardless of what the examination shows, that baby uh, should always have an ultrasound done at the earliest at about six to eight weeks of age to look for the condition. Um, but the things that we look for, there are three or four things that we look for on examination. So sometimes when you're examining a newborn baby, baby's hips, what you're doing basically is uh, rotating the hip through its degree of movement. And you can sometimes feel some instability. If it's really bad, you can actually feel the the thigh bone dislocating in and out of the socket. Um, not painful to the mm. to the baby, but you can feel it just Clunk. uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, clunking in and out very easily. Or you might just feel a bit of a click when you when you examine the hip. And in both those situations, it's important to follow up uh, and get an ultrasound done. Or if if you actually do feel it's dislocating really quite easily, then uh, that that child should actually be referred to a, a paediatric orthopedic doctor for evaluation. Um, a lot of women have read and will read about the creases behind the baby's um, yeah. legs. Yeah. So the creases behind, so what we call the extra fat roll. That can be sometimes one of the only symptoms or signs of, of hip dysplasia, uh, but it can actually occur in up to 20% of kids who don't have hip dysplasia as well. Mm. Um, I would say if, if that is picked up by, usually by the maternal and child health mm. nurse or your GP, that, that it's still probably worth Having getting ultrasound. that ultrasound yeah, done so because, yep. I mean, the ultrasound, it's so easy to do. There's no radiation involved for the child um, and you could pick up something that could be potentially fixed very easily and have no sort of long-lasting mm. implications and pre- and for you. Exactly. Yeah. It's been a lot, really a lot of the, a lot of the newborn really things. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome, And Kat. having a chat about um, our the little nuances, babies. Nuances of yeah, newborns. Yeah, because, you know, I worry about people having this anxiety with early parenting. You know, I, I, I think it's so important to enjoy the early days because... Absolutely. A lot of it's worried away, you mm. know, and it's, I know with experience, it's really good to be able to, and then Brenda, to be able to help parents sit in that anxiety and say, look, it's okay, your baby's fine. Worry if I worry. That's, yeah. That's what you need to do. And now you've got, you know, you're a photo away or a video away. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, sir, no, I don't want any photos. <laughs>
Impossible woman, <laughs> impossible woman. Oh, I think that's very important that you said that, Brooke, because I think, you know, as a new parent or as new parents, that you, you know, there are plenty of resources around to help you. And, you know, particularly as a new parent of your first child, it's hard to know what's normal. You don't know oh, yeah. what's normal. So, you know, ask people. Even know, as an expert, I found it challenging. Yeah. yeah. Trust your instinct, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Just, just gut yeah. feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. Common sense, practical common sense, you know. I always say, put your head in Africa. Look at how those, how marvellous those women do. Mm. Just very easy. Or we'll say to a lot of people from different cultures, go back to your village. Like, put your head back in your village, what your great-great-grandmothers do. You know, like, relax, just enjoy. Just remember how they raised you and how the, how the village raised you and what the village did. It's just, it's really important to set that up as a voice in new parents' head. Midwife Kath Curtin, Dr. Brendan Chen, thank you very much. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks, Thanks Brooke. Brendan. Thanks, Kath. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thanks. This has been Birth, Baby and Beyond with Midwife Kath Curtin. Birth, Baby and Beyond is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Melbourne, Australia. Executive producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Darcy Thompson and music by Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app. A Podcast One production.